Hello and welcome to episode two of our Future Cities podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills. Herbert Smith Freehills is a global law firm and I am Nicholas Carney, a partner in our Sydney infrastructure team and your host for today's episode. I am joined by my fellow partners from our London office, Lewis McDonald. Hi, Lewis. And Matthew White. Hi, Nick. To discuss the topic of decarbonising our cities. To start, I thought our listeners might like to briefly hear a bit about each of your areas of expertise. Lewis, would you like to kick things off? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, Yeah, so I'm based in London, but as you can hear from my accent, um, I'm from Australia, uh, Perth, in fact. Um, So um, I've been in the energy sector since I started my career uh, over 20 years ago. You know, I suppose, um, you know, coming into the business in Perth, that's what a lot of people do one way or another. Um, And then I've worked, had a stint in London um, between 2004 and 2008. Um, And then I was out in Asia for about 11 years in Singapore and then Korea and then Japan before coming back to London. And I'm currently leading the energy team at at Herbert Smith Freehills and, you know, practice across the different areas and different subsectors in in the industry. So thanks, Nick. Thanks, Lewis and Matthew. Thanks very much, Nick. Yeah, I have to say I've had a much less imaginative career than Lewis uh, in that I have been been based in London for pretty much my whole career for the last 25 years. I work in the real estate sector. Um, I'm a partner in our London office um, and I practice in uh, planning in particular. So I help our clients get planning permission for uh, major buildings, master plan projects, uh, etc. Um, and I, I head up the real estate sector team at uh, Herbert Smith Freehills. So I'm really interested in joining up between different practice areas and different sectors and how we all contribute to making cities uh, fantastic places to, to live and work. Thanks, Matthew. Um, and thanks, Lewis, for your introduction. And I think that's a really important theme that I think will come through, Matthew, what you've just talked about, and that's the convergence of different um ex areas of expertise and perspectives to address problems um, like decarbonizing our cities and the future of our cities. So I, I think we'll hear more about that today. Um, so the aim of today's episode is to bring you, our listener, unique perspectives on how our cities um, can help lead us to a, a net zero future. Currently, our cities cover 3% of the Earth's land surface, yet they produce more than 70% of global emissions. By 2050, the world's population is expected to reach nearly 10 billion people, with the vast majority of the of this growth happening in our cities. So given the net zero targets now in place for 2050 in many major economies, there's a really important, urgent need to make our energy consumption more efficient and cut emissions as our cities continue to grow. So enough with the introduction. Um, Maybe to start the conversation, a question for you, Lewis, and that is, what do we mean when we talk about the energy transition and decarbonisation? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nick. Um, Look, the fact of the matter is the current global energy system that we all enjoy the benefits of, you know, that underpins our economic growth, our prosperity, etc. It's currently um, supplied 80% by fossil fuels. You know, it's just a it's just a stark fact. Um, and whilst there's been incredible progress um, over the years with the development of um, cleaner energy, renewable energy, 
um, the system keeps growing. You mentioned the population number there of 10 billion, Nick. You know, we're currently at about 7.5 billion and we're already producing um, emissions that are contributing to, you know, the sort of climate change and the projections for that. So we've got a, um, a world that's growing. We've got a world that's urbanising and we've got a world that is powered 80% by fossil fuels. So, and we know um, based on, uh, you know, the science that we've got to get to a net zero position by 2050. You know, um, and that's the, that's the OECD countries and developing countries have to follow. But that's an enormous challenge. And by decarbonisation, we really mean we've got to take the carbon out of that system and have a system that doesn't produce carbon for the atmosphere, because the atmosphere unfortunately stores carbon for probably hundreds of years. So we have to stop the flow. And to do that, we need a system that doesn't produce the carbon. And that implies an, an incredible um, energy transition or energy transitions, multiple of them happening around the world. As um, some countries, let's face it, are really just switching on. You know, there's 860 billion people in the world that don't actually have access to reliable yep. electricity. They've got to switch onto the system. You're going to add another two and a half billion people. And then um, the rest have to take the carbon out of their existing system. So it's an enormous series of challenges um, that have to happen all simultaneously, uh, pretty much from now until 2050, um, at a cost probably of around $5 trillion per year, according to the IEA in their recent report. So yeah. massive challenge. It's happening. You know, there's a massive commitment to it. We can maybe come on to that later. But in a nutshell, that's really what decarbonisation is about and, and, and that's what energy transition is about. Thanks, thanks, Lewis. I think that's really good framing of of the context in which we're having this discussion, and I think that's I think that's really important for our listeners to hear. So, Matthew, a question for you: what what role can and and should cities play in the energy transition? Mm. Well, I think it's absolutely essential that cities are at the forefront of the climate change agenda. And it is essential for them to change if we are to achieve um, the objectives that Lewis has set out. And as you said earlier, Nick, cities account for about 70% of global carbon emissions and more than 60% of resource use. So, you know, this, this is where the fight has to be led. And, you know, it's not surprising that making cities inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable is a UN sustainable development goal. Um, so I think the, the the important role that cities play and the powers that cities have to shape themselves by setting policies, procurement strategies and so on is absolutely key. Um, and we've seen, you know, some cities put out net zero visions for the future. Uh, we've also seen wider uh, commitments and programs such as the EU Covenant uh, of Mayors for Climate uh, and Energy, the C4 Cities Initiative, and of course, individual city commitments. Um, so in Europe, we've seen the Mayor of Paris commit to a 15-minute city. Uh, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, wants to achieve net zero carbon in London by by 2030, so actually moving faster than the, the national goal. So, you know, cities can set the agenda, and that's really important, but they can also change behaviour 
Uh, and that's the bit I think that really interests me. And there's a nice interplay between how much do we achieve by changing behaviour and how much do we achieve by by simple decarbonisation of the grid. And Lewis and I will will have some interesting views on that. Yeah, I mean, Lewis, do you do you want to offer a perspective on yeah. on the role yeah. cities can and should play? Yeah, I mean, you you you've, you've hit it with the stat, Nick. I mean, if cities are producing seventy percent of the emissions. And if cities are growing, um, then it's a very good um, thing to target, you know, in the mix. Because, you know, when you think about decarbonisation, um, which is really getting from where we are now, which I think globally we're producing 51 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, and we've got to get to zero by 2050. So you've really got to start to break that down. You know, where are those emissions happening? Um, in what sectors? And over what time period? Do we want to hit interim targets, et cetera? I mean, in fact, Bill Gates does a pretty good job of that in his recent book, which is sort of a popularised way of communicating these messages out. And there's there's other ways that it's done. But cities, um, they have a very direct um, contribution to the issue. But then through the consumption that happens in cities, you've got the knock-on effects of all the resources, you know, being used for them and the knock-on effects in the energy industry. So if you can make inroads at the city level, you are having an enormous impact on the the the, the, the problem as a whole. Mm. Uh, and Matthew's talked about some of the policies that are now coming out from the city. So the good thing is that cities, obviously, they operate um, with powers, as, as Matthew said, in the context of state governments and then national governments and then the international framework. But that, at that city level, there is a lot that cities can do to really lead and to influence um, a lot of this. They can't do everything. You know, but they can do a lot, and it's really important that there's that cities are getting involved, that they're really thinking about what can we do, you know, what are we contributing, in in relation to emissions, and what can we do to reduce those emissions, because it is the acts, maybe it's the small acts of many, that make a difference. Matthew's mentioned behaviours, um, and 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 it's in addition to you know the broader, larger, you know, big ticket policies. It's the combination of those two things that are really going to make the difference here. So, yeah, cities are central, Nick. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think um, offering an Australian perspective, we've definitely seen that the the cities and the state governments um, have been more active and more progressive in in tackling climate change than our, um, our, our federal Commonwealth government. Um, and you're you're seeing really the the Commonwealth is is holding back while the whilst the states and the and the and the city um, like you know the, the the city councils and so forth are are leading the way as is business actually um, so that's a really interesting dynamic as you say they don't have all the same levers but they do have some levers um, so I think that's quite interesting. Um, Lewis, are there any examples of companies that have that, that mm. you know of who are targeting cities and the, and a role in decarbonising cities? Yeah, yeah. Look, the one that springs to mind obviously is BP, and you know, full disclosure, you know, um, we do a lot of work for BP, so you know, we, we're close to them as a company. But they've been um, they've been pretty vocal in terms of their vision for their company out to 2050. They were one of the first to. Um, boldly go, if you like, um, back in uh, the early part of 2020 when they set out their vision um, and, you know, the new, the CEO, Bernard Looney, you know, put out his statement. 
a part of their net zero 2050 ambitions included a focus on cities. And, and they said at the time when they announced their new strategy that they would target uh, 10 to 15 cities around the world and they'd look to partner with them um, to try to create net zero cities. It's quite an interesting idea, if you like, that a company would partner with a city to try to help that city get to zero. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've mentioned in, in you know publicly that the cities they're, they're looking to partner with initially. So there's, there's Houston. And um, there's Aberdeen, and maybe it's two key cities they want to start with. So they're, you know, they're they're actively looking at what they can do, and and that really means um, it's quite a novel concept if you think about it. So they're having to sort of step forward and really think about what does that mean. Um, and it's interesting, and I think probably interesting for other companies and other cities to to maybe to watch on and, and maybe see what happens there. You know, because it's um it's going to be some sort of leadership if you like. Uh, for the for this maybe industry or new industry, it's very bold for a company like BP, um, who, given their history, to come out and say that net zero is a commitment they want to make. But then going a step further and saying we want to work with with cities and we have a role to play in helping cities achieve that. I think that's um, yeah, that's really interesting that we're saying that. Yeah, yeah, and they've picked it, and they've picked a couple of cities where they have a very um, long history. And a strong relationship, um, and where their industry, their traditional industry, is very important uh, to those cities. And so I think it's quite good. So in a way, they're trying to, you know, set themselves up for success, um, and also um, maybe, you know, have some have some sort of jointly aligned interests yeah, yep. because there's a there's an employment aspect to this as well. You know, these cities maybe that are um, are very much, uh, you know, in, entrenched in hydrocarbons. They need a future as well. You know, they currently employ a lot of people, um, and they're very significant in terms of their contribution to the broader economy. And it's important that those cities, you know, look forward in an optimistic way, yeah. um, and have support from companies and from governments to help them transition. Because this transition, it's a, it's about um, a change in the way we consume energy, the change in the energy we consume. But it needs support. People need to be supported to make the change in their own. Um, lives and in their own um, practices and what they do in order that this can happen. And so yeah. I think this is quite a nice way of tying up uh, a transition in the energy system with support for those that need it to just continue to prosper going forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, Nick, you and I have been involved in uh, some research that uh, Three Hills has done on future cities and the future of cities. And I think one of the themes that came out of that very strongly uh, was convergence that you mentioned earlier. And that this is the scale of this challenge is such that no one sector can solve it on its own. Um, and certainly the public sector is unable to do it on its own. So where, as I was saying earlier, they can lead and they can set the agenda. But if they're going to deliver, they need support from the private sector and from energy and transport and infrastructure. So I think we've seen um, coming out of uh, COVID as a pandemic um, that, that, you know, there is a huge need for investment in resilience and infrastructure and the structures to help this happen. And so teaming up in the way that BP are proposing, I think, you know, could be absolutely transformative. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that certainly... Um that certainly came through in the research we did last year that that 
convergence of sectors, convergence of skill sets um, is really important and partnership um, and, and partnerships is really important. And I think where you have partnerships and convergence happening, um, there's there's a lot of opportunities. Um, I, I suppose that sort of brings me along to a, a, an area of convergence and that would be the convergence of energy and technology to sort of get your thoughts on on that is you know can technology provide a silver bullet or mm. or is it just techno optimism um, is it is it real yeah it's well, a good I'm, sure, I'm sure matthew will um can, can contribute his views on the importance of behaviors but on the sort of technology side um well the iea has come out yesterday with a really interesting report and i sort of alluded to this maybe in my introduction it's a report on um you know, what needs to happen in the energy system for the world to get to net zero 2050. Obviously, that challenge has been thrown down and many governments or legislatures around the world have legislated for net zero 2050, so the UK being one of them. And the the IEA has kind of taken on the challenge and said, all right, if that's what the world's going to do, if that's the direction of travel, then if you want to get to net zero 2050, this is what you need to do. And they're saying that we've got the existing technologies to do this. but we need to scale them up massively and we need to really change where we're putting our money. Uh, it's going to be expensive, but, but we can do it. Um, and there's there's an enormous amount of technology that has to come into the um, existing energy systems to sort of revolutionise them. And also perhaps um, some of the emerging markets have to leapfrog a little bit and go straight there. Um, a lot of them are around um, efficiency, Nick, you know, to try and help us actually use less energy and to use our energy smarter. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of technology, you know, and the smart meters is one aspect of it. I know in Australia, you guys are already, you know, a long way ahead. Um, a lot of ways around how the grid can be managed and expanded and reinforced and the intermittency issues around renewables obviously need to be solved with technology, batteries, hydrogen, whatever. Yeah. There's a plethora of technologies that need to come in. And we're often talking to funds and, um, you know, those looking at the opportunities here to actually get in um, and, and and invest in these technologies at an early stage and, and you know, do really well, helping them scale up, et cetera. So we find a lot of the conversations around um, the energy transition, particularly when you bring cities into the mix and you think what kind of new infrastructure is going to be there on the ground to deliver this? Where are the opportunities? What can I invest in that's going to be the next big thing? You know, this yeah. is this is all happening right now maybe in conjunction with um, other shifts and how we live our lives. I don't know if that's a segue for you, Matthew. <laughs> well, I, I, before Matthew jumps in, I'd just say that's definitely seeing that happening in Australia. There's a bunch yeah. of, there's a bunch of, um, of, 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 um, of funds and accelerators um, and a lot yeah. of talk about infrastructure tech, energy yeah. tech, smart city technology. Um Renewables, right, um, of course there's going to be a lot of them and they're going to scale up. There's there's no doubt. And you look at the IEA um, uh, sort of projections and there's a lot of excitement in there for those that want to invest in renewables. But as we know, you know, those of us doing the deals, um, there's so much competition for renewable assets. So the funds with the low cost of capital, they've got a big advantage here, you know, in terms of their ability to compete. But there's other opportunities out there you know, like I say, like these companies that are developing the tech and that are feeding into the system, there's yeah. all these opportunities on the side, the less obvious ones, where there are really great 
uh, opportunities for returns. You know, when we're talking to the funds, as I say, they're scouting around looking for those types of opportunities, and that's really exciting. You know, and there's a lot of funds out there that are that are chasing that stuff. So there's lots of different places to play uh, in this new and um, you know wonderful world. Sorry, Nick. So no, I, I it's really relevant. So Matthew, you were going to offer a perspective. Yeah, I think you know, Lewis, you say this this is happening today. Um, my fear is that it's not happening today; it's happening tomorrow. Uh, and so technology is is an excuse for inaction. Um, I don't need to change my behaviour because there's going to be a new a new product, some new device, uh, some great thing from the gods that's going to save me. A vaccine, um, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and we see this um, from people who are effectively climate change denier. And I know you're not, Lewis, and that's not what you're saying. But no. I think it's slightly I dangerous. I wouldn't have you on my show, Lewis, if you were. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's it's dangerous to say that technology will save us. So, you know, in real estate, technology is in many ways an untapped resource. And um, we have yeah. seen you know, building information management systems for some years. And there's huge scope, though, to develop those, to integrate them in, into other systems, personal devices and so on. And uh, there's also massive scope for, for technology to improve building efficiencies, uh, both through embodied and operational carbon um, and of, of course, you know, carbon emissions generally through energy consumption, um, making buildings more efficient, as well as uh, how we generate that energy. But I do think the biggest impact is is likely to be through behavioural change. So, you know, we, we need to be making our cities better places to live by thinking about how we plan them, where we put things. Um, uh, and in doing that, you know, discouraging people from having to travel as much as they have in the past. So it's not about saying buy an electric car. It's about saying, well, do you need an electric car to travel somewhere when when actually we've planned a city in a way that those things are already on your doorstep? Um, so, I, you know, I strongly believe that there is a behavioural um, uh, task for cities to deliver alongside the technology solutions that hopefully um, will, will, will alleviate the issue uh, in the future. Matthew, yeah. just on that, how, like how, um, you know, that 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 would be easy if you were building a greenfield city. Um, it seems to me harder, given that we're already in our cities and and you know a lot of the infrastructure is already there, the roads are there, the CBDs are where they are. Are you seeing clever? clever policies or approaches or are you seeing good examples where people are are, are, are doing that in existing cities? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, small interventions can make a huge difference. Um, so, and you know, we've just been through or we're still going through a huge experiment uh, in the way that we live uh, uh, as a result of um, the pandemic and the lockdown that we've experienced. So certainly in the UK, um, in London, you know, we've all found more uh, resources on our doorsteps uh, than we had before. So we we will shop locally instead of driving into town to do that. Uh, we've discovered nice coffee bars on our doorstep. We've 
made the most of um, local parks in a way that people haven't before. So, you know, you don't need to do, um, you, you don't need to go to the lengths of uh, a global pandemic uh, to do this. You just need to open people's eyes to what's out there. Uh, but, you know, we've also seen um, small interventions, some of them controversial, such as low traffic neighbourhoods, which uh, have been uh, popping up all over London, which are reducing um, car travel by making it harder to travel around by car and conversely a lot easier to walk and cycle. And I, I think those will will make a difference. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the way that we plan our existing cities is probably more important than the way we plan new cities. Uh, um, and cities are, by their nature, uh, dynamic and ever-changing. Um, you know, London uh, is constantly changing, and that's what makes it such an exciting place to live. I know, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are absolutely the same, um, and, you know, uh, everywhere around the world um, uh, is experiencing similar issues. Mm-hmm. So, that's a, a great, great response. Thank you, Matthew. I, I, I suppose I want to – I think that's a – um, some good practical examples that Matthew's given. Lewis, are there any practical um, practical examples of how we can achieve a sustainable decarbonised city that you that you sort of want to mention? Um, yeah, and I'll just I'll just touch on a point Matthew made there as well. I think that um, you know it's going to be a combination of behaviours and technology. Um, and just, just to note, I mean, so far, you know, we've had this quite remarkable uptick in renewables supplying um, our system, if you like, in, in the UK. Also Australia, you know, if you think as your coal is, is sort of being phased out, it's quite incredible how it's all um, being, um, you know, resupplied, if you like, um, through renewables. Yeah. You know, uh, your, your rooftop solar, your batteries and all that. I got rooftop uh, solar in uh, in December installed, and uh, how's it going? It's going really well, but there's there's been some reports lately saying that the dramatic increase in rooftop solar is actually causing some challenges for the grid, and that they're thinking about what they may need to do to um to to deal with that. So I may be I may be installing a battery uh, <laughs> uh, quite soon. Um, although having said that, now it's winter, we have the heater running uh, nonstop, so it's probably fine. Just have to swallow the spider, <laughs> the flies, Nick. Um, but like, so obviously you've seen it in Australia, in in the UK right now. So right at this very second, I've got an app on my phone. I can tell you that the UK is running its power system: 50.6% gas, 15.1% solar, 11.9% nuclear. 8.1% biomass, 6.9% France, 2.7% wind, 2.6% Belgium, and then the rest is hydro. Yeah. So you've got this incredibly diversified system in the UK. In, in Australia, you're getting to that point. When I switch my light on um, in my house, whether it's powered by coal or whether it's powered by wind or solar or nuclear, it, the light all looks the same. It doesn't affect it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect you as well, as long as it's operating, which it is basically, right? Yeah. And they're talking about the power system is thing that's being decarbonized. What we're about to do in the world is we're about to move and we're about to start decarbonizing the transport system. And we're about to start decarbonizing the heating system and the buildings. And we're just about to get to a phase where you start to notice something's going on. And I think it's important to sort of land that point. Because Matthew's talking about the behavioural changes that need to happen. So far, we haven't really noticed too much as individuals and as consumers and as citizens 
that this has been going on in the background because it's the power system that's been decarbonising, but not to a point where it's made it intermittent. Although I shouldn't yeah. mention it, I will. South Australia, and then you went and got the batteries from from Tesla. Yeah. So you, you actually faced the problem in Australia and you fixed it. That's the sort of thing that you might expect to see a bit more of. But they learned the lesson, I think, and you'll start to see it done in a way where you don't notice it. But these these other shifts, you will start to notice it. And this is where it's going to be quite interesting, I think, politically, shall we say, yeah. as um, consumers, citizens have to start to make choices, even around things like eating meat and stuff like that. You know, I don't want to go there. But, you know, everyone's starting to feel it now. You start to see it on the horizon. Yeah. But, you know, you, you move towards a horizon if you follow the analogy through. And the horizon is ever changing. And this is the situation we're in now. So I just wanted to say that around this kind of com combination of technology and behaviour. We haven't noticed this much so far. The light's yeah. still the same when you flip the switch, but a lot's been happening in the background. It's about to come to the foreground. So yeah, in terms of the system, I think Lewis, that's probably the answer you need. Sorry, Matthew. Sorry, I just want to you know, say it's not necessarily – I think sometimes people – hold this out as you, you 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 will suffer as a result of the need to make choices which reduce energy. And I don't think it has to be that way. You know, it's not by making the environment better, your quality of life will be worse. Those two can go together. Yeah. Um, you know, and we don't need to wear hair shirts and, and sit in the dark. Um, and that's what I think the opportunity is for people to come together to deliver yeah. those improvements to enable us to move to net zero carbon yeah. in a way that still supports the wonderful lives that we all lead. And I agree. I fully agree. You know, I and I think that's the thing we've got to focus on because it's important to be optimistic. You know, uh, particularly there's yeah. a lot of um, yeah. doom and gloom out there. Let's face it. Let's be honest. Um, and particularly some of the younger people coming through are feeling quite pessimistic in many cases about the future. But I find that when they get onto this topic, and I see it with the younger um, lawyers coming through our group and, and around the world, they get excited about this stuff, the stuff that Matthew and I are talking about right now. It excites them. They feel hopeful. Yeah. Um, and I know because they, they're very ready to take the assignments around this, these topics. They jump at it. They work the weekends. They work the nights for this stuff because they really feel good about it. And I, I actually think that is really important, you know, and um, we have to create a hopeful, positive, optimistic environment. And um, so the behavioural stuff and all that, just we've just got to do it in a way that makes people feel good and makes people feel like they have some control over the situation. It's hard, right? It's sensitive stuff. But I've seen it with the younger lawyers coming through that this is something they want to be involved in. And, and that's that's good. That feels positive. Um in a position like myself, you know, you, Nick, Matthew, I think it feels good for us, feels good for them. So uh, it gives yeah. me a bit of hope, I've got to admit. I, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. And what you've touched on there, I, I think, is a, a, almost the beginning of a topic for another podcast, um, and that's the rise of ESG. Um, and mm. in good news to our listeners, um, we will be having a podcast um coming out soon with Silke Goldberg, um, who leads our ESG practice globally. And so um, we probably won't delve into that too much other than to say that, I mean, you've really, you've really, um, really identify that that is a trend. It's like, obviously it's, it's popular with the, you know, the the, the um, lawyers who are coming through the firm, but we're seeing our clients um, 
really embrace ESG. Um, and, you know, there's been a real uptick in interest um, and advice um, needed in relation to that. And so, um, you know, we'll no doubt talk to Silka about that. But um, I think that's that's a really good point. But I, I did like, Lewis, what you said about um, about the importance of being optimistic about these things um, and sort of not being afraid of change, but but embracing the change and the opportunities that come with that change. So I think I think that's um, I think that's really important, and um, and and you know that 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 will be relevant to how you know organisations, governments, um, cities, and and everyone within them um, deal with these things. So, look, we're coming to the end of the, the, the time we had allocated. I, I just wondered, is there any points that either you, Lewis, or Matthew, you wanted to cover um, coming out of the discussion today? No, I think we've um, hit the high notes, Nick. I think that's been a really, hopefully for the listeners, that's been interesting. Um, you know, and, and just it's convergence is something you both mentioned earlier. And we talk about convergence sometimes as something happening in the outside world and organisations have to come together. I think this particular topic, I think we've all experienced this, haven't we, Nick, Matthew, myself and others in the firm. We've brought all our sectors together for this because this is us converging as Herbert Smith Freehills to help, you know, our clients and to contribute something to this topic and perhaps even to lead a little bit. And it's really that. Yeah. I think this is this is part of the secret sauce maybe is um, how do yeah. you get people from different backgrounds to come together and, and focus their efforts at a common point? Because this 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 issue is going to need a lot more of this, and organisations that can um, converge in the way that we're trying to, I think there's going to be a bit of an advantage for them going forward. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think some of the most exciting conversations we have uh, in the firm are between different practice areas and different sectors, and you know that's where the sparks uh, happen. Um, so I think you know if we're going to be innovative, and if if uh, if clients are going to be innovative. Um, we all need to look beyond our traditional silos um, and embrace some things that maybe we don't feel quite as comfortable with. But look, that's where the excitement is. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge. I think that's right. The other thing I would say is um, it's really interesting with problems like this one, looking at what's happening in different jurisdictions. And that's one of the reasons why we have podcasts like this, where we get folks from different parts of the firm to, to to get on the phone and Lewis has had the benefit of working in you know 48 different countries um, <laughs> over the years um, they keep throwing him out that's the trouble yeah and and so I I do think that um, the different approaches by different um, by different jurisdictions and different cities um, is, is is really interesting and I think the extent to which we can share some of those lessons is a really good one look I uh, before just as I wind it up I, I think it's been really um, great to hear from you both um, as you were speaking I, I sort of remembered a book I read um, at last year and that's a book by Rahm Emanuel Rahm Emanuel was the chief of staff to Barack Obama, and he wrote a book called The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Um, mm. And in that book, he, he he pointed to the gridlock that you see in Washington. And, you know, you, you could argue there's been gridlock in Canberra, uh, in Australia around climate policy. And it seems like the UK's 
um, getting on with it a bit more. But he said that the, the sort of gridlock that 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 is happening there has created an opportunity and a need for cities um, and and states and other levels of government um, which are closer to the problems mm-hmm. that um, that are responsible for the transport systems that need to be de- decarbonized that have control of the planning frameworks to actually take steps and to just get on with some of these issues rather than obfuscating or arguing about it and um it's a, it was a really interesting book i'd commend it to all our listeners out there and um and and so with that i just want to thank everyone for for uh, uh listening to us today we look forward to continuing the conversation soon around future cities um as i mentioned we will be having a an episode relating to esg um in in the coming weeks with silka goldberg and uh, and someone else from our firm Um, If you're interested, listeners, in exploring our Future Cities initiative further, please check out our firm's hub at www.herbertsmithfreehills.com slash futurecities uh, and stay tuned for our next episode. And please feel free to get in contact with, uh, with Matthew, Lewis or I with any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Nick. Great to talk. Bye-bye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.